sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today, on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be marking the annual International Workers' Day, its historical and ongoing significance. Also going to be talking about the Biden administration naming uh, Terry Wolf as its uh, coordinator for security assistance to Ukraine, the history of Wolf and what his appointment could mean for the conflict. Also going to be talking about the inhumanity of uh, homelessness and displacement here in Washington, D.C., with implications for the rest of the country. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Dave Lindorf, investigative journalist, editor of the online publication This Can't Be Happening.net, and 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dave, of course, we've recently marked another International Workers Day, uh, historically a day where the working people of the world uh, celebrate the gains uh, that they have made throughout the years. And it really is a global holiday. I mean, I've been seeing videos and photos and images from, you know, from Cuba, from South Africa, from Lebanon, from Sri Lanka. I mean, literally, it's sort of an international expression. And uh, it's not a holiday. It's not a holiday here. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. It's not something that is widely uh, celebrated here in the United States. Uh, although you know there are groups that sort of do things throughout the country, which is interesting considering that you know there are deep roots with the U.S. as it pertains to International uh, Workers' Day and you know the the Haymarket affair and things like that. And so, I mean, to begin, Dave, I was hoping maybe you could break down uh, some of that history in terms of the relevance of International Workers' Day uh, to the U.S. And I mean, what do you think the relevance is today as I think, you know, we're seeing something of a surge of uh, labor activity here? Yeah, but but it's 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 an appropriate kind of surge because it's a surge uh, on the left among workers organizations that are radical. And uh, the history of May Day is a radical day of uh, celebrating, you know, workers and uh, revolutionary change for the better of working people. So, so in the U.S., it was a very major day. I mean, it used to be like masses of people coming out into the streets on May Day in New York and Chicago in and San Francisco. You know, big labor towns were where, you know, radical socialists uh, and organized labor that was uh, led by radical people would come out. Uh, and, you know, they'd call out their demands for, you know, things like a 40-hour day or a five-day week and two-day holiday and, you know, all those things that uh, – and an eight-hour day. You know, all these things that we take for granted now came uh, through struggles that were celebrated on May 1st. And and the uh, – to kill off that radicalism, uh, the government – of the United States in Washington created a, another Labor Day that they gave a holiday for, and they made it way over in September um, at the end of the summer. And traditionally now, you know, your, your sort of uh, run-of-the-mill checkbook 
trade unions bought into it. Uh, and uh, they, you know, march like we have a march in Philly of the uh, that's sponsored by the uh, the uh, Philadelphia Labor Council. And uh, it gets smaller and smaller every year that I've been here for 20, 25 years. Uh, it keeps getting smaller. And it's very tame. They 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 all have uh, shirts representing their local, and they they march. And you know, some of the kids come out and do drum. Uh, what do they call them? Drum uh, like a drum circle. Uh, no, not drum circle. The you know where they march and get dressed up, and you know they have uh, marching band. These uh, marching. It's not a marching band. It's just drums. Oh, okay. It's a uh, uh, mostly in the black community. They they do it. And they, they take it very seriously, these young kids. You know, they, they're they really great uh, to watch and hear, but it's not a radical thing. And, and, uh, and then they, and, you know, there's a lot of beer drinking and people having barbecues and stuff. That's what Labor Day is in America. And it's, and it's the first Monday on, in September. And it's very consciously kept as a low key uh, celebrate your union, you know, kind of thing. But, uh, not uh, no radical demands. Uh, politicians come down, uh, even Republicans, to speak at these labor uh, rallies at the end of the march, and uh, you know, and they all talk about voting for me because you know I'm good for labor. But that's about it. And um, so we just don't have that. But but you know, the history is back, as you said, to the the Haymarket massacre. Where you know this was back in the day of of the um, IWW of uh, Eugene Debs Socialist Party uh, when you know he was running for president and getting over like a couple of million votes I think um, America was a different place it was anti the labor movement was anti war you know in so many different ways it was a different labor movement it was a radical labor movement and it was crushed by you know the uh, alien sedition acts and by taft hartley law and everything that made it difficult to strike um for major industries and and so you know it was all part of the emasculation of the of the the uh, left labor movement that we no longer have a may day uh celebration of any consequence so now you know you you get places like Seattle where we have a socialist uh, leader elected, uh, you know, in some of these other cities like Madison, Wisconsin, and things, and 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 maybe in a few towns like New York and San Francisco and stuff where the labor movement still is a little bit radical in some sectors that you'll get a May Day march. Uh, where people will have more radical demands being expressed, but uh, but it it's a far cry from what it was. Yeah, and you know, uh, just yesterday uh, here in D.C., Dave, I had the opportunity to go to a uh, sort of May Day celebration um, cookout, you know, picnic. It was in, you know, the community. There were representatives from different struggles. And I just I took a step back and just sort of looked at, you know, the different struggles that was representative, you know, some of them local, some of them uh, national, some of them international. And, you know, for me, it just sort of clarifies why it's necessary to bury the history of workers' struggle in the United States, you know, because 
I, for one, don't believe it's an accident. You know what I mean? When when we're in the sort of major uh, capitalist nation on uh, the planet and, you know, you, you have every reason then to, you know, disincline uh, uh, working people from organizing. And certainly you uh, have reason to make sure that, you know, they don't think that they have a history of struggle, number one. And if they do, that, that it should be celebrated. You, you know what I mean? And so when we look at sort of the... Uh, uh, sort of developments in the labor struggle that we've been seeing lately. I mean, literally historic uh, moves being made here when we talk about the unionization of Amazon and, you know, at uh, uh, Starbucks, you know, I mean, Starbucks, along with their sort of successful unionization efforts, reportedly there are organizing committees at over 200 stores. I mean, these are major, major corporations. I mean, of course, Amazon is owned by Jeff Bezos, one of the richest people on the planet. And for work to make these kinds of gains, I, I think, just sort of speaks to, you know, the importance of not only sort of celebrating International Workers Day, um, but also, you know, celebrating the history of working people in this country that have achieved so much. I mean, the idea that people got attacked in a Haymarket in Chicago all those years ago, uh, I believe in 1886, I mean, just outright attacked over an eight hour day. I mean, it, it shows how important uh, a worker exploitation is to this country and this system. And I just feel like it's important that, you know, we kind of keep that in mind and keep that at heart and really use it as like a motivating force for the struggles that are sure to come. Yeah, we don't, you know, the, 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 they don't even teach about this stuff in the schools. No. When people, when kids take American history, you won't find the Haymarket uh, massacre mentioned. You won't find the IWW mentioned and the execution of Joe Hill. You won't, uh, you won't, you know, read about these struggles that were, that were massively important. You know, there were some later ones like the organizing of the national farm workers was a huge breakthrough for the labor movement back in the sixties. And, uh, you know, and the, and you had, you know, some of these things that, are in the memory of living people, but you know the the real struggles that gave us uh, what progressive things we have: social security, um, unemployment insurance, uh, eight-hour day, forty-hour week, overtime uh, after forty hours. All of those things are uh, the result of of blood and you know uh, bruises on the street. Uh, by working people fighting for these things that we now take for granted and don't know the history of. We think we just think, oh, they gave us this, you know, they gave us this. We we grabbed it. We demanded it. We stopped. We stopped industry. We used to have, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least citywide strikes by all workers or, you know, national strikes on a few occasions, I think, um, back in the day. And and until we get back to that, uh, we're going to be going into this neoliberal, you know, uh, nightmare for deeper. 
neoliberal nightmare. I think that that really sort of accurately describes sort of the current moment that we're in, Dave, because I I, I just I feel like the, the neoliberal program has just proven itself to be like a spectacular failure that has had really devastating impacts for working people really uh, uh, around the globe. And I feel like if you look at the even the plight of working people sort of just in over the last three years in the time since the uh, coronavirus pandemic, where we clearly saw uh, the U.S. government uh, privilege and prioritize uh, corporations and Wall Street and the CEOs and and things like this over and above uh, the interest of the everyday person who was really facing the brunt of this pandemic. Uh, we, we, we saw, you know, uh, issues around protections for workers, uh, issues around hazard pay, all these uh, 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 sorts of things that just really made it clear that, frankly, uh, uh, the ruling class in this country is more than willing to let us get sick and die as long as it means that the gears of the system keep going. There's a fascinating article in The Nation, current issue, uh, uh, just a less than a page article. It's really great uh, about how women who just gotten the, the vote in, in uh, 1921 and were, you know, really organized in 1918 th- during the uh, during the last big, big plague. Um, you know, the, the Spanish flu, they called it, uh, that, uh, pandemic women organized the crap out of, uh, the country because they were losing so many babies to that, uh, horrible pandemic that they said, uh, you know, we need a massive spending on public health and they got it. It was increased by something like 30 percent. I mean, by 30 times. It was the biggest increase in spending in public health uh, in history ever, (laughs) including uh, the the implementation of Medicare and Medicaid. They they reduced, uh, I think it was infant mortality by, you know, uh, 20,000 deaths. They, uh, they demanded clinics that women could go to and they got them. Uh, and, uh, it, it was an amazing history of women coming together because they'd gotten the vote and saying, you want our vote? You give us, you give us public health care. Uh, and, and, you know, training in sanitation. They had house to house people going all over the country to every household and teaching people basic sanitation, like you need to boil milk before you give it to the baby and all its, you know, stuff and that nobody knew about. And, and it was a, a fantastic campaign. So this article says, you know, now, you know, women are facing losing the right to abortion. And they're saying, you know, well, the, the article, the woman that wrote it said, uh, the solution is women need to withhold, uh, having babies, uh, they, ha- they should charge men for having a baby. And I thought that was <laughs> yeah. great. They said, if, if we're going to have them in the neoliberal system, let's, let's take advantage of it and use a market system for women getting pregnant. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's absolutely relevant to raise this when we talk about the role of um, women in labor and how that connects to sort of women's oppression overall. I mean, I swear, there's a a statistic that is like forever burned in my mind from December 2020, where uh, 140,000 jobs were lost and and all of them were women. And then, you know, when we look at sort of the ongoing issue of the gender pay gap and things like this, I mean, we see how, you know, gender, class, race, all of these things are interrelated and interconnected. Well, how about childcare? In, in most countries in Europe, public-funded uh, childcare so women can work. Women can't work in the United States. Uh, you know, poor women can't work because they can't get affordable childcare. So it's actually losing money for them to work because they got to pay for childcare. And it's not good for the kids. It's it's not healthy for the kids to be, you know, left at home if the mom does have to work, if, especially if it's a single mom. But there you go. That's that's what this stupid country does. And, and it's only going to be organizing through labor and dealing with the women's labor issue of needing to have – I mean, it's not fair. It should be equal taking care of kids. But as long as we have this reality, sexist reality, that the reality is without – free child care, women can't work in a whole economic range of women. You either have to have enough money so you can pay for it or be so poor that you can get free uh, child care. Definitely. Definitely. We got to continue to build this uh, people's movement for working people, for poor and oppressed people, for a new society. Well, we thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the United States uh, basically continuing to flesh out its uh, Ukraine war apparatus. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Jeremy, here recently, the Joe Biden administration has chosen uh, Terry Wolf, who's a 34 year veteran of the U.S. Army, to coordinate the U.S. government's uh, uh, security assistance to Ukraine, uh, which to me, I think basically means he'll be overseeing sort of the the ongoing funneling of weapons uh, from the U.S. to Ukraine. And, you know, Terry Wolf, uh, not only an Army veteran, but, you know, a veteran veteran of uh, being involved in uh, different conflicts and, and wars and things like that on behalf of the U.S. Uh, frankly, I have to say, a pretty blood-soaked kind of resume here. And so I was hoping you could help us understand just who is Terry Wolf, what is his history, and what do you think uh, his uh, appointment signifies for uh, the war in Ukraine? Sure. Well, uh, from what we know about him, uh, you know, he's a West Point graduate. Uh, 
and he rose in the military hierarchy, and uh, he's been involved in many wars, you know, going back uh, at least to the Kosovo War in the 90s. Uh, I think he assisted in the deployment of troops uh, there. Uh, and, you know, that was a, a pretty bloody war where, you know, at least hundreds of civilians were killed in a bombing operation that, I mean, the end result was establishing a major U.S. military base, and it empowered, uh, uh, you know, Kosovo Liberation Army, which had actually been a, a branded by the State Department Department as a terrorist organization uh, a few months, just a few months before the war. So, uh, and then from there he goes on to Iraq. I think he played a key role in training the Iraqi security forces, uh, which were involved you know, in death squad operations and torture. And he was involved in the Anbar awakening. I think he was involved in the Fallujah. Uh, you know, uh, atrocities where, you know, some Blackwater contractors have gotten killed in 2004, and the U.S. military basically just devastated Fallujah. And chillingly, he gave an interview to a journalist, and he presented that as a great model uh, for the second Iraq war in Mosul, when the U.S. Army was, uh, you know, fighting ISIS. Although, really, you know, there was a, I mean, the U.S. military invasion of Iraq basically created a schism between the Shia and Sunni, and it was really like an ethnic war that the U.S. was intermeshed in. And Wolf was, you know, oversaw the siege of Mosul, which really uh, kind of replicated Fallujah, where the city was flattened, uh, there was, you know, huge devastation, a lot of people got killed, and one observer even compared it to Hiroshima after the dropping of the atomic bomb. So, uh, you know, this guy has a lot of blood on his hands. Yeah, he was involved in overseeing U.S. military operations in Syria, and now he's on to Ukraine, where I think the bloodshed's going to continue, because these, you know, armed supplies are just going to prolong the war, block any diplomatic resolution, and, and cause more bloodshed. And we have reports, you know, the Ukrainian army uh, atrocity. Well, they're not being, you know, reported in the mainstream media, but uh, although there was an Associated Press report last week about, you know, kidnappings, uh, you know, uh, even civilians who are, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, social media posts that are favoring the Russian side or critical of Ukraine are being rounded up. Uh, so this, you know, just signifies this is really kind of dirty war out there. And, you know, these huge arms shipments and the U.S., you know, Biden administration just approved another $33 billion last week. It's just a massive influx of arms that's just going to uh, add to the carnage and, and, again, prolong the conflict and prevent a diplomatic resolution. So I think it's ominous, his appointment as an arms czar and his background in all these bloody uh, wars the U.S. has fought. Yeah. And I mean, also the appointment of someone like Terry Wolf to me, Jeremy, just sort of, you know, reveals the United States government's uh, real intention in Ukraine, because what we've heard from the very beginning is that the U.S. is, you know, acting as a protector of the Ukrainian people, a defender of their human rights against Russian aggression and and things like this. But I mean, when you have someone like Wolf, who's responsible for so much bloodshed, like you were just mentioning, you know, I just think that it sort of reveals what's uh, uh, really happening there. And I mean, I just thought about this. I mean, I'm sure you saw this, too, recently, Jeremy, about 
about how, you know, U.S. officials um, basically admitted that, you know, they don't they're not even sure a lot of the times where a lot of these uh, weapons are even going. And they I believe they called it like a calculated risk. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of insane on its face. But within the broader context, understanding the far right neo-Nazi and ultra nationalist elements within um, the Ukrainian military and the police, I think that that becomes particularly troublesome. And, you know, Jeremy, I feel like we've reached a point in the Ukraine war where the U.S., I think in a couple of ways, is starting to be more honest in a way about its intentions. And what I mean is if we if we look back recently to um, Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin talking about how the U.S. intends to weaken Russia and all these sorts of things, uh, CIA Director William Burns, uh, I mean, literally admitting that the U.S. is, in fact, in an information war with Russia. And it just seems like the real character of the U.S. Uh, and NATO's involvement in the war in Ukraine is becoming uh, more and more apparent. And, you know, their real motivations, I think, are far less honorable than these issues of human rights and democracy that they preach. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, Biden even kind of slipped. Uh, well, you know, Biden's known for these slips because, you know, it reminds me of the Syrian war, you know, the first point you were making that we don't know where these weapons are going. And, you know, in the case of Syria, there was a huge arms pipeline on you know, the Operation Timber Sycamore. And they claimed it was going to, you know, to the moderate rebels and the moderate opponents of Assad. Uh, but then, you know, Biden let it slip that there were no moderates and they were all, you know, extremists and, you know, jihadists who wanted to establish an Islamic caliphate after overthrowing Assad. And we have a similar situation here where you have, you know, the Azov Battalion is a uh, influential force within the Ukrainian military. And it's likely a lot of the arms are going to go to those, you know, neo-Nazi extremist groups uh, that seem to be dominant uh, in the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian regime. So, I mean, the U.S., you know, citizens and taxpayers ought to be up in arms. I mean, we don't want our money going into a black hole and these extremist groups that are just going to uh, tear tear a country up just like they did in, in Syria. Uh, so, and yeah, and your point about intentions, I agree. I mean, Biden himself, you know, made clear that regime change in Russia was a key objective. And it seems to me that, you know, it's very clearly a strategy very similar to that which the U.S. had employed in uh, Afghanistan in the 1980s when, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who's a key policymaker of that era, explicitly said, you know, we wanted to give the Russians their Vietnam and bog them down a quagmire in Afghanistan and induce a Soviet invasion by supporting these Islamic extremists who Brzezinski admitted in the case of Afghanistan that they had supported a lot earlier, well, well before the Russian invasion, with the purpose of, of getting Russia to invade. And it seemed like, you know, history is just repeating itself. The U.S. provoked Russia uh, in umpteen ways, uh, ensured that this, uh, you, know, you know, war would take place. And now they're, they're providing all these arms to try and bog it down, weaken the regime, and promote regime change. But it seems so far the strategy is not working because public opinion polls that we have access to are indicating Russians are supporting Putin more than before, which is at odds with the U.S. strategy uh, of regime change. You know? so. Yeah, and you know, I feel like one of the most powerful weapons that the U.S. has deployed uh, during this war in Ukraine, Jeremy, which, of course, is really, at least from my perspective, just a proxy war for uh, between the U.S. and Russia. And uh, in terms of the U.S. war propaganda, 
and how we've seen it. I mean, the the sort of underlying narrative, if you will, it's this sort of very binary, very uh, black and white, uncomplicated, you know, narrative of, you know, Russia bad, Ukraine good, Putin bad, Zelensky good. And, you know, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, I mean, uh, has reached an almost kind of angelic sort of status in terms of how he's presented to the American people as like the head of this scrappy, you know, little country that's under attack. But no one's, uh, at least in the mainstream media in the U.S., is really uh, discussing the suppression uh, that is happening and has been happening under Zelensky. I mean, um, we've been seeing reports about uh, attacks on dissidents. Uh, You know, we already know that uh, not that long ago, Volodymyr Zelensky actually banned 11 opposition parties for being, quote unquote, uh, pro-Russia. And, you know, this is what the American people are simply uh, unaware of. You know, they see Zelensky giving a speech at the Oscars and all these sorts of things. I mean, it's a really potent sort of uh, propaganda campaign that the U.S. is sort of operating here. And, you know, to the point where any alternative um, narrative or analysis or more fleshed out way of looking at the situation is not only not considered, but is actually in, interpreted as, you know, like aiding and abetting war crimes or, or, or apologizing for, you know, uh, uh, this invasion in this way. And so I, I was hoping you could tell us more about what some of this suppression has looked like. I know you've been uh, publishing some stuff about this for, for Covert Magazine, Covert Action Magazine. And so I was just hoping you could help us understand, like, what is sort of the extent uh, that we know of in terms of what that looks like in Ukraine? Sure, yeah. And one comparison, you know, uh, Douglas Valentine, uh, I interviewed him. He's uh, the author of the seminal book on the Phoenix Program in Vietnam, which if viewers are uh, unfamiliar, the Phoenix Program was basically a large-scale uh, police intelligence operation uh, to round up, you know, any kind of dissenters against the, uh, you know, corrupt puppet government that the U.S. had set up in South Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And they were often targeting civilian, you know, civilian officials and mayors who were sympathetic to the National Liberation Front, uh, which was the left-wing anti-imperialist group in Vietnam. And it is, uh, sadly, you know, Valentin notes a great parallel with what's going on in Ukraine today and the special services, because they've launched a large-scale campaign to uh, basically round up dissenters, uh, including you know, civilians who are making you know, social media posts. Uh, that seemed, you know, critical of Ukraine or favorable to Russia, uh, including uh, civilian officials and mayors of, of towns and small cities that want to promote diplomacy uh, with the Russians. They're being uh, rounded up, uh, in some cases tortured and executed. And as uh, Valentin pointed out, yeah, feature of the Phoenix program in Vietnam was a lack of a, a, a due process for anybody who was arrested. Uh, under these sweeps, uh, and that seems to be what's happening in Ukraine because there was a mayor who was executed uh, in a small town, and a high you know, member of the Ukrainian government here ministry said, oh, there was a people's tribunal, uh, and this traitor was executed, and this was a good thing. Well, people's tribunal is not a formal legal structure. He was never put before a, a formal court. Uh, so this is very, very disturbing, uh, these extrajudicial killings that are going on. And this is really a large-scale state terror operation, and it's completely at odds with the image 
uh, in, the, in the media presented of Zelensky as a saintly figure, uh, and you know it, it, it contradicts the notion that the U.S. is fighting to save a democracy. And the other thing, you know, Valentin points out, and there's evidence that the CIA uh, is supporting the SBU, and you know the CIA helped run the Phoenix program in Vietnam. And they seem to be using similar tactics uh, and promoting uh, similar methods in Ukraine. They have a presence within the SBU. They've been training Ukrainian special forces. That was exposed by Yahoo News. And there are Russian defectors who come out and said that the CIA has been supporting the uh, Ukrainian secret services since 2014, when there was a Maidan coup. Uh, And this has the trademarks of a CIA operation. And the CIA may be assisting with development of blacklists. And that's how they get their suspects, and they they snatch them, and then they you know go into the prison system, and they you know some are released, but uh, many, as I said, are either being tortured or even murdered without any kind of a trial. So this is a horror show, and I hope the public will awaken to this and demand you know, congressional investigation. And, you know, uh, there should be a movement to bar U.S. aid for the Ukraine regime, which is really a, a horrible regime, contrary to the media impression, you know, which is just pure public relations fluff. Yeah, I tend to agree. And, you know, uh, another aspect of the narrative around the Ukraine war is that, you know, NATO as a force is this, you know, defensive institution, you know, that helps countries and and all these sorts of things. When in truth, it's, you know, I think pretty obviously just a a tool of, you know, U.S. imperialism and, and a way for, you know, the U.S. to, you know, advance on and encircle and to try to contain the governments that it deems, uh, uh, its enemies. And it's funny because even recently we've seen uh, former President Bill Clinton uh, published an article uh, basically justifying his decision to expand NATO uh, in terms of its role in Ukraine. And so what's happening with uh, uh, that in terms of what uh, Clinton is talking about here, uh, Jeremy, and why is this history of the expansion of NATO sort of relevant to the Ukraine question? Well, I think that's a central factor that has created this conflict. You know, there there was great hope with the uh, end of the Cold War that this would usher in a new, you know, new world order that would be a more peaceful world order and that there would be good relations that are established between the United States and Russia. And even such figures at that time, like Robert McNamara, key uh, Arctic and Vietnam, War, was talking about a peace dividend and, you know, reinvesting instead of huge military spending that the U.S. government would, you know, really invest in things like health care, education, and build you know, a better society at home instead of uh, creating conflicts abroad. Unfortunately, the key policy sabotaging that noble vision of McNamara was the Clinton policy to expand NATO, uh, because NATO was viewed as a relic of, you know, from a Russian point of view, NATO was a relic of the Cold War, and it was a hostile alliance targeting Russia. And actually, there had been a promise made by the Bush, uh, first Bush administration that it would not expand NATO one inch eastward. But Clinton, you know, violated that pledge and expanded NATO to three countries, uh, I believe Poland, Czech Republic, uh, and Romania, I think was the third. And that, you know, since that time, NATO's expanded to many, uh, you know, I think 14 countries encircling Russia. So, and then, you know, the issue of Ukraine, the Ukrainian regime since the Maidan coup, uh, I think both Poroshenko and Zelensky were uh, favoring, you know, Ukraine's joining NATO. And that was obviously a no-go for Russia. I mean, 
uh, you know, Ukraine is, you know, there's a deep historical uh, uh, connection between Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, a country on its border couldn't accept, Russia could never accept, you know, Ukraine joining NATO, uh, much like Georgia. And so that's, a, you know, a key factor uh, provoking this conflict. It was really a disastrous policy by the Clinton administration that figured like George Kennan, you know, the uh, father of the original containment strategy and kind of wise old man of U.S. foreign policy, had warned against NATO expansion. It would just inflame the Russians and cause a new Cold War. And Kennan's you know, prediction came true. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough momentum to block you know, Clinton's a disastrous policy. And he used a tortured logic in this Atlantic article trying to defend himself. He claimed, oh, well, Russia wasn't a threat at the time, but they would become more expansionist, so we needed NATO as a safeguard to future Russian expansion. And, you know, there's a book uh, by a journalist named Guy Matin uh, about the history of Russophobia in the West, and he shows a pattern going back almost a thousand years of how this kind of mythic Russian expansion and aggression uh, is invoked constantly to justify U.S. empire. And, I mean, NATO, in part, its function is to kind of safeguard U.S. power and Western access to the mineral well. Like, you know, Central Asia uh, has, uh, you know, oil and gas resources that are bountiful. And there's really an imperialist drive to control those resources and seize them from Russia, which, you know, in the Soviet Union, a country like Kazakhstan had been part of the Soviet Union, uh, so when the Soviet Union collapsed, the U.S. and the oil companies saw an opportunity to seize those riches, and that's in large part what NATO is about. But nobody will admit that, that it's really an imperial drive by the West and the U.S. They make like its defense against uh, Russian aggression when Russia is much less aggressive than the U.S. I mean, Russia has a tiny number of military bases, six or seven. The U.S. has 800 to 1,000 military bases. So who's the aggressor, you know? Definitely. I definitely agree with that analysis. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about homelessness and the cruelty of displacement in Washington, D.C. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Brian Weaver, an Adams Morgan community activist and community outreach specialist at Potter's House. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, John. Great to be on the show. Absolutely. And Brian, just this past weekend in the Adams Morgan neighborhood of Washington, D.C., um, there was a memorial and a vigil for a lifelong Adams Morgan resident named Miguel Gonzalez, who died recently of uh, 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 hypothermia. And I feel like the story of Miguel Gonzalez uh, uh, and his 
passing is sort of indicative of a number of systemic issues and abuses, really, that are characteristic, I think, both of Washington, D.C. and actually around the country at this point. And, you know, I feel like it's it's always tragic when we lose a community member. But, I mean, the circumstances uh, around Miguel, I think, just uh, make it uh, particularly troubling. And so to begin, you know, I want to talk about you know, Miguel Gonzalez, the human being. So, Brian, if you could sort of break down just who Miguel was, uh, the circumstances around his death, and, and you know, uh, what do you see sort of really as, you know, uh, uh, emanating from this, like the cause, really? Wow. Um, so I personally have known Miguel for like 20-plus years. He was, he was kind of a fixture in the neighborhood, from the time I moved in in like the early 1990s, um, but I really got to know him sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Um, he was just like a character that would always over be at Walter Pierce Park, who like you know was in pickup basketball games over there. His mother Philomena was sort of the the uh, neighborhood babysitter for for like a lot of uh, working class immigrant families in the community, people who had night jobs and things like that. So Philomena would be the go-to babysitter out of her apartment over there. And uh, the apartment that they lived in, which was right across the street from Walter Pierce Park, had been a, a, a long-term apartment building, sort of, uh, low, sort of low-rent uh, apartment building for a long period of time. And then in the early 1990s, it was converted into a co-op. And then, so essentially it was, I would say, probably majority immigrant, uh, first-generation folks living in there, smaller number of, of uh, long-term African-American families that were living in that building. Around 2004 to 2007, there was this conversion from a group that uh, business is no longer uh, around in Washington, D.C., called Tenacity. And they convinced the residents in the building to to convert their, their co-op into a condo. And I was trying to argue with, you know, I was a, a elected official at the time, and I was I was trying to convince the residents there to, like, actually, you know, to turn down the vote. I thought that they had more power as, as a co-op. They were all equal owners in the building. Um, you know, there were rules that are set up for co-ops that really sort of makes, you know, it, it like a lifetime time thing. But it's tough, man, when you have folks that look wanting eyes back to Jamaica or back to El Salvador, back to Guatemala, and be like, I could buy, like, you know, some land back home and afford to buy, like, some place in the suburbs out here. So overwhelmingly, most of the, the people in the building uh, voted for the conversion and then and then essentially sold their units pretty quickly and the, and the building converted over very quickly and, and became almost all exclusively white. Um, you know, middle income, those family units were really converted into one-bedroom units so it didn't have the sort of longevity of building like families. Um, the two people who didn't uh, sell were one African-American family and and Philomena Gonzalez and, and Miguel, they kept theirs. Uh, Philomena and, and Miguel just felt they had such deep connections to the community that there was nowhere else they could they wanted to go. So they uh, stayed there. Uh, Miguel worked uh, at the Marriott at one point. Was working at the Sheridan across in Woodley Park uh, until the Sheridan went out of business. Um, and so those folks were, were you know part of the community for a long, long, long period of time. 
when Selena got into her mid eighties, she ended up she ended up getting a reverse mortgage on the condo, and you know the ones that they try to hawk you in midday television programs. Uh, she ended up taking one that seemed particularly predatory, and you know even though it was only a few years that she had it, uh, and and we weren't really able to sort of find how much money it was that Philomena pulled out when she passed, which was the way that she would default on it. Miguel was left with a, with a bill of $400,000 that was paid that was due immediately. So, you know, he didn't have that. He was trying to fight it. He was, you know, trying to find out actually how much money his mom had gotten out of, out of the mortgage. And in the midst of that, he was evicted. When he was evicted, he, he had... Some friends he was going to stay with. He went to stay with them, and then COVID nineteen hit, and they felt that they couldn't have like an outsider living in like sort of a small space. And so Miguel hit the streets and essentially spent the last eighteen months living on the block where he grew up as a person unhoused, living in sort of back and forth between um, life assets, which is a which is a transitional housing place, ironically. The, the SunTrust Plaza in the, like in, in the middle of Adams, Oregon, which has been sort of the center of a lot of controversy, and and a little bus shelter. And uh, he had some friends and some people in the community, uh, house folks, a lot of his old neighbors really looked out for him. You know, tried to you know get him to stay in the hotel now and again, or try to get him to like to end up like finding a way to get into transnational housing. But he was just committed that he was going to win this suit against this uh, uh, mortgage company. And he was going to get his, his mom's old apartment back. So it, as, as the story just kind of went on, I, mean, I think the, the COVID on top of what happened over at the plaza at SunTrust, which is there's a community plaza that's been there since the 60s that uh, the old community really fought to sort of have it maintained as a community space, an open plaza. Uh, recently, the you know as, as banks do, they've... Um, changed and converted and what became, you know, SunTrust ended up becoming, I can't even remember. Truist, another right? bank, which now is, Yeah, which now has become Truist. Yeah. And so their ultimate goal was to essentially to sell off the property, to build it up and, and sort of maximize it in, into uh, a for-market housing and to eliminate the plaza. Uh, in that sort of battle back and forth community, there was a, during COVID, because so many people, so many shelters ended up uh, shuttering their doors during the pandemic, they developed a small uh, sort of tent city right there at the plaza, and sort of back and forth, some people ended up taking hotel space, Miguel and another group of people who sort of stored their stuff in the plaza, but didn't necessarily stay there night to night, ended up losing all of their belongings, because the truth blocked it off and threw away all the tents and stuff that were gathered in there. And because they were not always actively sleeping in the plaza, they didn't get the vouchers for living in hotels. It, it just seems like a, it, I mean, it, it just seems like a huge weakness. It, at some point, a, ca- a caseworker came through and if you were had a tent in the plaza, and if you were living in the tent, you got a hotel voucher. If you weren't in the, in the tent at the moment, you didn't get the hotel voucher. So Miguel does not end up with a hotel voucher. He stays on the streets. You know, we have one really nice weekend of almost 80-degree temperatures. And then the following weekend, it snows. Just dumb Washington, D.C. weather. 
and it catches him completely off guard. He has no tent. He has no sweaters. He essentially is in a in a t shirt and jeans. He, you know, when when I knew him really well in, in the early two thousands, he was extremely physically fit. I just think the toll of the last eighteen months really just did a number on his body. That and I think that probably he ended up drinking a lot more once he hit the streets, and he didn't survive. And the thing about the thing about Miguel that really kind of stuck with me was. I knew within the unhoused communities that like this was definitely going to be like a a rallying point and, and, and sort of a, a, you know something that they would be able to to, to rally around it, you know because he was this very charming uh, guy. But there were also like people in the business community who, who knew him really well. You know, like he was a guy that like you know if you needed your if you needed like your cafe port swept. Like and the people would go like Miguel, if you, hey man, if you do look like a little Johnson here, we'll hook you up with a meal, or you know, really actively engage talking to people from who work for the business improvement district. Um, so it's it's you know it's just immensely tragic because so many of us knew him, and like definitely a lot of us were trying to get him to um, get some help. But man, pride is a hard thing to overcome. You know, if you've lived all 56 of your years in an apartment that you own, that your sweat equity went into, that you fought to like maintain through a co-op and a condo, you know, it's tough to just sort of give up on that and say like, yeah, I'm going to go live in transitional housing. And, uh, you know, it's, this is something that just like cuts so deep in this community. And, and there's so many of us that like just knew him and loved him and, kind of are in disbelief that this happened to him. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I think this is something that that, that we all kind of like ha- are, are guilty of when we hear of an accident somewhere in the world where, you know, a, a boat overturns and a thousand people die in Bangladesh. You don't know anyone from Bangladesh. You haven't been to Bangladesh, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't relate to you in a certain way. But then you know some one person who's there and suddenly you realize the, 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 of, of the tragedy, you know, for people who've seen what's going on with the unhousing crisis during during COVID across the country. Um, my mother lives in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. There's roads out there that look like Mad Max. People living in cars off of uh, highways, like on real estate. <clears throat> it's it's just like until you have someone who's lost a life that was like close to you, it's just a completely different ballgame and. I know cities are struggling with it. You know, I'm no fan of, of our local government here, but I think that, like, they've tried some things. They've spent a lot of money. I don't know if those resources are going to the right places. But it, it's just, you know, like, obviously we're talking about, you know, when you get to the level of people losing their homes via reverse mortgages, a pandemic, and then another bank closing off uh, access to where you capture, like, dry clothes and sweaters and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, there's a little, there's a little degree of just loss of humanity that, that I don't know if we can ever get back. A loss of humanity. And that's what I think is really at the root of this, Brian, because what we're talking about is a fundamentally 
inhumane situation. I mean, we've talked about uh, uh, this predatory lending, uh, the experience of uh, homeless folks in this city and all the different dynamics that comes with that. And I mean, a problem that certainly existed before the pandemic, but has only become worse in the time since the pandemic. And I think you were uh, sort of alluding to that in in your comments, Brian. And, you know, I was actually just looking at some uh, recent city statistics in D.C., and there's more than seven. 17,000 empty housing units in the city of Washington, D.C. And yet, when you go around the city, you don't have to look hard to see, you know, the 10 encampments, how large they've gotten, how uh, encampments are now popping up in, in, in places where they weren't before. And it's just hard not to really ask, well, you know, well, why is it that we can't simply uh, house all these people who need some place to stay? And it's like if you look at the housing uh, market in uh, D.C., I mean, a lot of these new um, um, developments are luxury developments. You know, they charge these sky high rents. I mean, you you talked about how uh, these developers will take a building the, and they'll take a family unit inside these buildings and basically split them up. And it seems to me that uh, that's being done very purposefully because the city wants to attract basically uh, single, more well-off and uh, affluent people at the expense of poor and working class families who have been here for years, like Miguel Gonzalez and uh, uh, his mother. And so as a longtime resident and activist and organizer in D.C., Brian, I mean, you know, how do you sort of see the issue of, you know, gentrification and displacement as, you know, factoring into these issues of uh, homelessness and things like that? Because, I mean, the whole piece around the the SunTrust Plaza and, and the struggle around it, I think, sort of highlights that contradiction pretty sharply. Yeah, I mean, it definitely does. It, it becomes, you know, the, you, you go back to like the 90s and the whole kind of ridiculous Bill Clinton, you know, depends on what your definition of is, is, you know. So with this one, it's like, it's pretty clear. Like the, the, the letters of intent, the, the the letters from the bank, you know, talked about like that this plaza was supposed to be open and, you know, perpetuity of the, of the property, you know. And, and so then it becomes the whole thing. Well, like, you know, so what does forever mean? <laughs> are we, are yeah. we seriously? You know, it's it's it becomes this ridiculous sort of gamesmanship of of things that were obviously intent of a community to like, you know, essentially keep one of the areas that were sort of open for, you know, like and I, I think you know if you, if you go to any major city, almost anywhere in the world, there's a town square, right? And so like in the village of Adams, Oregon, that's definitely been the town square, you know, the the open plaza at, at that place, and you know. I, I think it'd be hard for someone to like, cause it's now, it's not like originally when the, when the homeless encampment started, you know, it was also like Whitehurst freeway, you know, it was down by the Watergate, but kind of in the woods, you know, it was like parts of Rock Creek park, you know, I, I know two dudes who are living in two point circle in, in, in a tent, right? <laughs> like that's like, you can't get a more sort of, urban destination sort of concrete jungle spot than the DuPont Circle. And you have to look to the gentrification of the city as being a huge business, you know? Like, we, we've always talked a good game about, like, trying to create something essentially for workforce housing, you know? But I think in the minds of a lot of folks, workforce housing ends up being something for people who make, you know, $80,000, $100,000 a year. That's yeah. not probably how it should be. Like, I mean... 
the the amount of service industry jobs that are in the city from people who would like to live close to somewhere where where they serve, whether that's somebody who works as a bartender or somebody who works for the Department of Public Works, you know, there's there's not really a lot of those blue collar neighborhoods left anymore. There's not a lot of those co-ops anymore. Those co-ops are great because you can essentially have somebody, you know, making fifty thousand dollars a year or under be able to like have some ownership in something. And and now for that to, to happen, you know, people have to move further and further out from the city and then continue to commute in, you know, and, and places like Adams Morgan, you know, people wanted to live there because of the diversity that was, that was racial, that was cultural, that was economic. And now what you have is you have the re- remaining sort of city owned, uh, the housing that is there. You have Julie, uh, the, the Julie Housing, which is a nonprofit, which has seven buildings there, and you have some of the co-ops left. But you know, from a generation earlier, I mean, the the greatest thing about Adams Morgan was that you could see somebody who who was uh, a well-established like lawyer on Capitol Hill living in a ridiculous house, and then like an up-and-coming sort of, like, you know, immigrant family from Nigeria that is, like, you know, struggling to, to just make it in sort of this American dream. And they would be walking the same streets, you know? And, and like, I think, and also back then, there wasn't a lot of American restaurants that were over and out. You could just see it, like, if you, if you walk through, like, culinary experience. It was all Ethiopian, Eritrean, Salvadoran. You know, there was no... Sundays were kind of close to days, like in the neighborhood. And now you go in and it's like, it, it's not really that same sort of natural cultural thing where people are like, you know, trying to get a taste of home on 18th Street. Now it's like really you're trying to draw in people to come in for Friday and Saturday nights. So, you know, it it, it, it breaks your heart just to, to think about like sort of what was Camelot of, of a place like Adams Morgan, you know, 20 years ago. It's just like for me, it's just like there's just, there was an opportunity at so many levels of people to sort of you know show their heart, show their humanity, and like you know bless the folks that are that are out there doing it every day, like you know like like trying to help people survive, helping people with like with uh, mental illness, people who uh, are suffering from PTSD that are that are living on the streets. There's like some great organizations that every day are in the mix. We have a kind of good partnership with Charlie's Place, uh, located at St. Margaret's Church, where we're trying to make sure that we get food into like, you know, a couple hundred people every day between Potter's House and us and or Potter's House and, and them. But like, you know, this is this is a far more sort of like in the roots, in the DNA uh, issue of what's wrong with with uh, pretty much cities across America. You know, you want to move to a diverse neighborhood, but you don't like the diversity. You know, you, you want to come to places kind of gritty, but you don't really like the grit. You know, you, you want to be around immigrants, but you don't really want to, like, live next to the immigrants. You know, and it's, it's just it's a heartbreaking moment because at one point, David went from being, you know, star athlete from Wilson High School and everybody knew him in the neighborhood to being invisible on the street, on the block where he grew up. Yes, it's tragic. It is tragic. And this is sort of, I think, a part of, uh, 
you know, the aspect of gentrification and displacement <clears throat> that people sort of overlook. I mean, there's a clear racial aspect to it. There's a clear class aspect to it. And I mean, we're talking about something that literally just destroys communities, can uh, uh, really have a negative impact on communal bonds. And that's, you know, why I'm so happy that, you know, people like yourself and other grassroots organizers are, are working hard to make sure that those bonds remain strong. Well, we thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. We want to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, May 2nd, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also uh, uh, listen to the show on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also download by any means necessary on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And of course, as always, we are streaming live on Rumble at rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world and however you holler at us, We most certainly want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, I wanted to make people aware that um, the good folks at Consortium News are launching a spring fundraising drive. And the reason they're doing that is because their PayPal accounts have been canceled and possibly the balance in that PayPal account may be seized. And uh, this happened recently. Uh, Consortium News got a message from PayPal that, you know, basically uh, said, according to this, that, uh, quote, your account is inconsistent with our user agreement. And that's about as uh, in-depth as they go. I don't believe they offer any more detail. But this hasn't just happened to Consortium News. This has also happened to Mint Press and I believe some other uh, alternative journalists and media platforms as well. And here's what I want to make sure everyone is clear on. Because this whole uh, fear-mongering campaign led by the U.S. and the West around so-called Russian disinformation... It was never really about that. It was always, always, always going to spill over into any media or to any journalist that has the audacity to publish content that goes against the grain of the Washington consensus and doesn't fall in lockstep 
with the whims of imperialism. And it doesn't matter if uh, those journalists or those platforms are affiliated with state media or not. Consortium News is not supported by any government. Neither is Mint Press News. But see, that's not even really the point. The point is to suppress and censor dissenting voices and dissenting perspectives. And one of the ways that we can fight back against this is not only to continue to support these platforms, but to uh, contribute to them if we can. So I just wanted folks to know about that. But be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Mr. James Early former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and a board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Mr. Early, of course, we've uh, recently marked uh, another International Workers' Day. We were talking about it a little earlier in the show about its history in the United States and why both that history and the working class consciousness that comes with it, I think, have been uh, uh, purposefully suppressed. But this has also been a time of a kind of renewed internationalism, I think, in a sense, because, I mean, uh, you had different brigades of uh, different folks. There was a North American Cuba youth brigade, excuse me, easy for me to say, that basically took a number of young uh, organizers and social movement leaders from across the United States and brought them to Cuba to take part in that country's May Day celebrations. And when they got to the country, they were welcomed by the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is the first sort of major May Day celebration that Cuba has had since the onset of the pandemic. But, you know, traditionally always just a massive, massive turnout uh, in Cuba for these uh, demonstrations. And even if we talk about uh, youth brigades to Cuba from North America, I mean, I believe even that has some history that goes back at least to the 60s. And so from your perspective, uh, Mr. Early, I'm just wondering how you see it as important for social movements and particularly young people from the United States to be able to have these kinds of experiences and to be able to um, be able to engage in uh, a solidarity in this way and, and to be able to get some impression about how not just Cuba, but I think sort of the, the, the global South and, and other such countries really operate and sort of how they interpret these sorts of things. You know what I mean? Uh, we talk a lot on the show about the need to internationalize our movement. And it seems that, you know, these are the sorts of things that we'll definitely need to keep doing to keep strengthening these bonds to help develop that international movement. Well, I think a very important question in light of um, what's happening here in the U.S. in relationship to what's happening around the world with working class people and for this younger generation, you know, I speak as a 75-year-old, I, I think it's very important that we understand that the first lines of solidarity are with in this nation among working people, which sets the basis then to really engage um, the international issue of, of the working class. Uh, keeping in mind, in my upbringing, you know, May, was, May Day was the dancing around a pole celebrating a, a primitive um, European uh, uh, tradition of the coming of spring, 
without any historical backdrop to that, not recognizing that in the late 19th century, 1886, uh, the Haymarket uh, Massacre, uh, in which you know about 300,000 uh, workers in Chicago came to the streets to demand an eight-hour working day. This is very important to put into perspective, as now there is a burgeoning uh, discussion about a, the four-day week here in the U.S., which would relieve a lot of pressure on working families, who the pandemic has unequivocally revealed is in desperate straits with regards to uh, service workers, the people who uphold our society with with transportation, who make uh, it possible for us to uh, benefit uh, from uh, the, the you know public sector act activities, highly racialized with black and brown people uh, suffering. Uh, both from the loss of jobs and the threat of death uh, under this pandemic, and of course, uh, marked by uh, the sexism uh, in our society, with significant number of women uh, in the working class, and the fact that we're now beginning to see a consciousness emerge in which there is a fight back of union organizing, particularly among service workers uh, and some auto workers here in the United States, uh, because the crisis of U.S. capitalism tied to global capitalism is so intense that people have a little relief other than to start to organize themselves because they cannot rely on the traditional parties, whether it be Republicans and certainly not Republicans or the working or the Democratic Party elite. So that's the context, I think, for then setting an understanding that we here in the United States have a working class history. Uh, which set up the context for the international workers' movement and where what spread out of Chicago in the late 19th century really helped uplift the world. And in this regard, the U.S. working class is an important horizontal linkage to working classes all around the world in the context of, 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 of internationalism. And also recognizing that, you know, huge prices have been paid for this consciousness, uh, in, in Chicago in 1886, uh, there was a bomb. Uh, no one knows where it came from. There was no evidence to prove that workers had put it. Uh, eight people tried. Four of them hanged without any evidence, which sparked an international solidarity uh, throughout Latin America uh, and, and, and Europe. It's important that we recognize that there is a spot. We don't talk about the international working class on the continent of Africa, for example, uh, which is something, again, in the racialized blind spot, even among uh, some progressives and, and leftists. So this is the historical context of the U.S. historical connections uh, and contemporary ties. I know that in Cuba, a uh, hundred young people through the People's Forum, uh, one of them, uh, my producer for, I'll put a little plug in here, for my New World uh, Coming program produced by the People's Forum is among those hundred young people who are among the thousands um, of Cubans who are involved in public manifestation and support of workers and the trade unions of National Trade Union of Cuba, as well as representatives from, from around the world. And this is an important context uh, of internationalism that we have to remind this younger generation of and provide them opportunities to ground themselves both in the history and in contemporary uh, interactions with working classes of people who are suffering all over the world. Let me just close off this introductory comment by noting uh, that uh, we are seeing um, the U.S. now 
uh, organically, directly involved in a war in Europe. Um, it is not on the sideline by any means. Almost a billion dollars already shipped as far as we know. We don't know what the clandestine nature of military weapons, uh, the military-industrial complex is afoot, uh, and that the cannon fodder for this are, on the one hand, uh, Russian soldiers in the illegal and uh, vicious invasion of, of Ukraine who are dying, Ukrainian working-class people are dying, and now U.S. and Western European soldiers are being placed in NATO countries, and they will be, the working-class people will be the cannon fodder for this while the elites and the corporate elites in this society are making billions of dollars hand over foot in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, and so this is a broader context in which we have to bring that history of the international working class. I said I wanted to close on that point, but I close on this point. It's important also to recognize how the U.S. elite, the bipartisan elite, blocked out this history of the origins of, of international uh, working class May 1st day coming out of Chicago uh, and cities around the U.S. where hundreds of, of thousands of people uh, came to the streets in, on strikes and refusing to go to work uh, when, when uh, this uh, event occurred in, in, in uh, uh, the United States. With Dwight Eisenhower, uh, law was passed to make May 1st uh, International Law Day to obscure uh, working class interests. And we know what these legal institutions have redounded to become now up to the Supreme Court in standing against the interests of working people and that the so-called liberal Democratic Party uh, has been unable, unwilling uh, to deliver on the necessities in this, this crisis moment that workers are facing. So this is a context that I think we should remember uh, as we look on the celebration of May 1st yesterday. Yeah, definitely. And I also want to say you, you should feel free, Mr. Early, any time to plug uh, New World Coming. It's a, a great program. I, I highly uh, recommend it uh, to people. It was actually that very program, New World Coming, that gave me the idea to try to get uh, 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 Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly on the show. And we really um, uh, uh, appreciated him for coming on. I mean, you've got things with uh, Hakeem Adi. Uh, most recently, uh, the most recent New World Coming piece is entitled Race in Cuba, Everything Within the Revolution, where Mr. Early interviews Esteban Morales Dominguez. And, and if you listen to the show, then you know that I'm constantly uh, recommending Mr. Dominguez's book, uh, Race in Cuba. But uh, Mr. Early, I mean, what you're talking about in terms of sort of the, the, the plight and the real material conditions of the U.S. working class at this juncture is so, so important. And what it makes me think of immediately is, you know, these reports around U.S. President Joe Biden toying with the idea of uh, some kind of student loan relief. I mean, uh, a business insider is saying that, uh, you know, he's looking to forgiveness of at least $10,000 per borrower. I mean, it appears as though, uh, uh, according to this uh, piece in Jacobin, it says that, you know, he'll be pushing for means testing. And it's just, it's, you know, it's just sort of wild to me about how, you know, the, the Joe Biden and the Democrats are obviously aware of how unpopular they are at this point and about how poorly uh, Joe Biden is doing 
in the approval polls. And so their response is to sort of consider uh, doing some kind of, you know, limited uh, concession type something that, you know, could maybe get them over the hump. And, you know, it, it, it can just be so frustrating about this uh, refusal from the ruling class, from the capitalist class to simply, you know, do these things that would have really, I think, an immediate uh, impact on the masses of poor, working and oppressed people, which they absolutely could do, even under this system, but simply choose not to. But, you know, I feel like I should remind people that this is Joe. Nothing will fundamentally change Biden. I mean, he literally ran for president on an anti-progressive ticket. And I don't know what else you call it when you uh, uh, issue all of the major uh, uh, political progressive points and policies that are broadly popular amongst the American people, like student loan forgiveness, like health care for all, like defunding the police and so many other things. And Biden has made it clear that uh, he's not you know, interested in this at all. So so this is why I say it, it was really like an anti-progressive platform. But since his name wasn't Donald Jake Trump. He now sits as uh, uh, the president of the United States. And, you know, I, I just think that this low approval for Biden is kind of a reflection in a way of uh, uh, the plight of poor working and oppressed people in this country, Mr. Early, because there really does seem to be this feeling of you know, dissatisfaction about a administration that promised a lot, delivered little, but will still expect us to to vote for them when the time comes. And if they lose, it won't be their fault for not do, doing anything for this class, but somehow it will be our fault for not uh, sufficiently supporting them. So it's just like a, a vicious cycle that the ruling class uh, puts us in again and again. And, and this just feels like, you know, an appropriate time talking about uh, May Day uh, to really sort of steal ourselves and kind of re reaffirm, if you will, our consciousness and really trying to build a working class movement for real structural change. Described about this, this vulgar racket in the first place of uh, indebting uh, not only working students, but middle-class students who are uh, in these overpriced institutions, uh, which are producing tons of people in disciplines for which there are few jobs uh, to to be had. It is just a vulgar, vicious, capitalist uh, commodifying of education that um, the consciousness now that we see among union workers uh, that we have to also say to students and others, and we think students, uh, uh, teaching assistants and the like, now uh, attempt to unionize in various places because their standard of living is depressed. They're unable to support themselves. And these institutions, which are now being revealed in the case of the Harvard report, which many of us have known all along, uh, were institutions that were built on the minds and the backs of enslaved African uh, people in this U.S. who were the working, the unpaid working class, the bottom of workers, uh, who then set up these tensions with uh, white workers who could not get access uh, to the job market because of the exploitation of enslaved labor. Uh, this history comes back. The seeds of this were planted centuries ago and now are manifest in the crisis that we're seeing all around. And that 
the Biden administration with all of the women that were touted, the black women that were touted, the vice president, uh, Harris, who is defending uh, the protection of apartheid occupation, uh, Israeli government uh, saying nothing about Haiti, saying nothing about Afro descendants being slaughtered in, in Colombia. Not It has disappeared basically on the domestic agenda of working people here in the U.S. Are Austin, who's head of the Pentagon, who is now out to publicly weaken uh, Russia, uh, uh, but is saying nothing about the support of these, uh, these uh, fascist, authoritarian aristocrats in Colombia that has the U.S. spear of imperial uh, regime change uh, in, in Latin America. And I could go on and on about the continent of Africa and uh, uh, setting up the, the, these funds and these think tanks. Uh, to start for a war, future war, as they say, uh, with, with, with China. So these contradictions are, are quite obvious. And so that uh, drawing on the history of May Day and looking at contemporary expressions, uh, we have got to support these students of organizing, these teaching assistants of organizing, these service workers, these automobile workers in organizing, because once again, we see that these standard elite political parties have failed and are failing them. And so it's not just Joe Biden, it's the system that he represents. And these diversions of vote for a black woman, but don't look at what her ideological outlook or what her policies are, or vote for uh, a gay department of transportation ahead, but without looking again at ideological uh, policies that will undergird the interests and the aspirations of working people. Uh, We have to say to broad sectors of people, this is a failed system. Democracy has already failed. There is no liberal democracy that is functioning in any way beyond the rhetoric, uh, nothing really to uplift the daily lives. And the voted aspirations of millions of working class people who say, this is what we want. And then when they vote for these candidates, uh, these candidates refuse to carry out those policies. And so this discussion now about student loans and perhaps uh, uh, relieving the burden in some way. It's just a midterm election ploy. And it is not going to solve the question uh, that the great majority of students who are carrying these debts are, are, are facing. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And uh, here recently, Mr. Early, a House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, made a surprise visit to Kiev, uh, Ukraine, of course, where she was able to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And uh, I don't know, it's just funny looking at this. It's hard not to think about uh, Victoria Newland uh, a few years ago, who was passing out cookies to, to protesters in Maidan while the U.S. was uh, backing a, a, a coup there. And, you know, 
as I'm sure you can imagine, Mr. Early, we, we, we talk a lot here on the show, not only about the Ukraine war and sort of all of its different ripple effects and uh, uh, implications, but certainly just the like the propaganda aspect to all of this. You know what I mean? And that's, to be honest, one of the grosser aspects of this whole conflict in, in a major way, I think. And, and what I mean by that is you have the United States government that claims to care so deeply uh, for the Ukrainian people, yet the U.S. giving billions and billions of dollars, and not only the U.S., but also uh, uh, you know EU governments and other Western governments, uh, funneling all these weapons to Ukraine, things that you know, will only prolong this conflict and deepen the suffering of the Ukrainian people. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., it's like this massive, I don't know what you call it, like a, a, a charade, a performance, this, this, this political theater that uh, obviously is designed to uh, justify the U.S. position as it pertains to uh, uh, the war in Ukraine and everything that has uh, uh, sort of emanated out from that. And we notice, as I mentioned earlier, that this has also signaled like a serious attack on uh, alternative media voices, uh, one that began as a, a supposed countermeasure against a, a so-called Russian misinformation. You, you know what I mean? And so we're talking about manipulation on, on just a mass level by the U.S., and these uh, corporate-owned media platforms and big tech, I should say, because whether we're talking about you know PayPal, Twitter, uh, Google, YouTube, Facebook, we're seeing these big tech companies basically act as emissaries emissaries of the state, which is a, a frightening sort of thing. But it's being framed in a way to the American people as though this is something for their benefit. You know what I mean? And, you know, so I feel like this is not the first time in the United States we've seen uh, a suppression of alternative platforms and alternative uh, views, Mr. Early. But the fact that there's so much energy put into it, the fact that um, it's so incessant and aggressive and the fact that it continues as, you know, the U.S. begins to be, I think, at least slightly more honest about its intentions in Ukraine, I think paints a, a troublesome picture here uh, uh, in, a, in a number of ways, you know? Well, I think it's another index of the crisis throughout this system. On the one hand, we've got the racist, fascist, authoritarian, right-wing, and state governments censoring uh, uh, education, textbooks, um, uh, going after parents uh, and, 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 and children of, of, of differential uh, gender uh, uh, um, identities. And then we got the so-called liberal establishment, as you as you pointed out, bringing together an intersection of private enterprise mogul uh, information uh, czars with uh, the state uh, in, 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 in censoring uh, alternative media. Uh, Julian Assange be, being, you know, a, a key that we have seen now for far too long. And so that this is another crisis institutional moment. Uh, that is coming from the so-called liberal community and the right-wing community, even as they are in a death battle uh, over governance, over elite governance uh, themselves. And this is just another sign that 
we have to have a different organized working class instrumentality for governance. It has got to come from the bottom up. We cannot rely on the status quo of, of the Democratic Party uh, to preserve these interests. And this is also uh, where the issue, despite the pervasiveness of racism, we have to recognize that the uh, the ascension of um, black men and women and brown men and women uh, in governance who are being integrated uh, into this imperial governance structure is insufficient. So with Pelosi uh, on this uh, visit to Ukraine uh, is Meeks uh, out of, out of um, uh, New York, head of the Foreign Relations uh, Council. Uh, Barbara Lee, uh, who it's unclear whether she just went to Poland or whether she went to Kiev. Uh, so that we have to bring these contradictions to the fore because this is a powerful uh, system of, of liberal elite and right-wing governance in the United States that draw in erstwhile progressives, our younger progressives, and makes it very difficult for them to carry out the views and aspirations of the people who have, who have voted for them. And we have to put Nancy Pelosi on the spot. Why aren't you showing up in Haiti? Why aren't you showing up in Colombia? Why aren't you showing up uh, on the continent of Africa, uh, rather than this white, it, it's a kind of liberal white supremacy that they're showing up in um, Europe, Europe for the interest of Europeans, which is not about the citizens of color who have been there for generations as a result of colonialism. It is not targeting the fascists in Hungary who are a part of NATO, nor the fascists in, U in Ukraine that John McCain on the Republican side was tied up with, and Biden's son himself uh, is tied up with, with millions of dollars. These are the contradictions that we really need to talk more about and have everyday working class people engage them. And with the goal, not just of analysis and understanding, but with the goal of seeking alternative governance representatives and a total dismantling ultimately of the system, but with progressive reforms, which will be the case over protracted years. But that consciousness has got to emerge in the way that, again, that it emerged around the working class in 1886 coming out of Chicago. And I misstated uh, that there were 40,000 people in the streets in Chicago, not 300, but there were 300,000 people who walked off their jobs uh, across the country with 13,000 businesses uh, in 1886. So that, that consciousness, we have to reground here, and people have to take that on to be the act of democracy themselves, to remember that that Greek term, demos, ordinary people, quasia, power, the power of ordinary people. They have got to rise up and organize themselves and stop the dependency on these people who are not delivering except they're delivering misery and, for, and further crisis. This expansion of the U.S.-NATO war against Russia uh, by con continuing to, fu to funnel uh, troops and military weapons is leading to the death of more Ukrainians and the destruction of material infrastructure of Ukraine. It is leading to the death of ordinary uh, citizens uh, in, uh, in Russia. While all of Russia is being condemned, uh, this, this, from sports events and intellectual and cultural events, 
who are people who are not in the military, who are not in the government of Russia. Uh, this is a dangerous intersection of the right wing and the left wing uh, in a kind of absolutism uh, that the U.S. and Western Europe, uh, white Western Europe, can set uh, the protocols for humanity. That's what we're seeing. And, and, and the result that we're already seeing that is affecting working people all across the globe, including here in the United States, go into your stores and you see you can't find certain kinds of things. Uh, that is intensified when you are in other areas of the world because we are looking at an expansion of war that the U.S. and NATO are really intensifying in the breadbasket of the world. The wheat in Russia and Ukraine and the fossil resources that, that uh, much of the world depends on. So that people have to really become active in the way that people organized themselves in the late 19th century in support of international working people. Yeah, definitely. And I want to stay for just a moment, if we could, Mr. Early, on this idea of reaching a deeper and realer and more thorough idea of what democracy really is. Because, I mean, if, 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 you're, if you're an American, if, if you're from the United States, then, you know, your whole life, your ears have been ringing about, uh, you know, democracy and how the U.S. is uh, supposedly um, the uh, sort of ultimate example of what democracy is and uh, an exemplar of upright statehood. But like so many other things, the concept of democracy is is skewed and, and vulgarized because of the interest of capital, which is the real motivation of this system and of this society here in the U.S. And it's a pretty it's like this very transparent cynicism of the U.S., of claiming that the country stands for all these, you know, uh, high ideals and uh, platitudes and this this moral uprightness and, and things like that. When the facts of history, I think, uh, tell a very, very uh, a different story. And so, you know, we're talking about a country that preaches democracy, but has routinely gone about the earth disrupting and intervening or, or at least attempting to do so uh, oftentimes with uh, destructive results, because obviously a true sense of democracy is not what the U.S. ruling class is really interested in. It's interested in expanding to new markets that can become new uh, uh, sites, if you will, for pumping more money and maximizing Profits, and that's the sort of core contradiction of imperialism. It's 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 an uh, infinite sort of hunger or desire for e expansion on a earth with finite resources, and as a result, we have all these climate issues and hunger and famine and war and drought and displacement and all these sorts of things that have a serious negative impact on humanity. But this is sort of the unseen. Uh, sort of ravages, if you will, of capitalism, at least I would say it's largely un unseen by folks here in the United States. Uh, you know what I mean? And so when we look around the world to all the different um, revolutions and sort of people's definitions, if you will, of democracy that we've seen uh, uh, spring up over time. And it just seems like that's a similar conversation that we'll have to have amongst uh, the people's movements here in the U.S., Mr. Early, as we move to really work to try to overturn uh, this system once and for all. 
I think again, you put your 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 thoughts on a on a, a fundamental point of the need for civic and political education. My wife and I were watching a documentary last night about the history of racism in the U.S. Foreign Service. And while it was a very informative and and small p progressive program, one of its fundamental flaws was to juxtapose uh, the issue of democracy against the issue of communism, uh, wherein the issue of democracy is about everyday citizens, wherever they are, who then seek uh, forms of economic and political uh, development that really redound to their interests, not to the interests of an elite um, uh, corporate sector. And so that the question of democracy is being debated today inside Cuba, not as a question of capitalism versus socialism, but as a question of, of how to deepen the agency, uh, the organized efforts of everyday citizens in Cuban socialism and how to have that more efficiently and consistently reflected by the stewards that they vote on to oversee their governance based on a constitution that they have voted on. It is not this false dichotomy uh, between democracy equaling capitalism. It is about democracy being people wherever they are, but who are seeking different systems to reach higher levels, deeper levels of, 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 of humanity, which was the case of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, uh, which has brought an extraordinary solidarity of these 11 million people in a world of 8 billion. Any place on this planet you go, you say Cuba, they say doctors. Yeah. They say health care. Uh, they say education. Uh, they say we are the the, cho- the children and the grandchildren of liberation fighters on the continent of Africa. And when our parents and our grandparents were killed in war as orphans, we went to Cuba where we were fed, clothed, educated, and prepared to return to our nations to benefit our nations. Uh, we have to bring this story uh, to masses of people, and this is the importance of programs like by any means necessary as public education forms. And so that this is this is one of the tasks at this moment of crisis we have to bring because we're getting these false dichotomies, whereas the, the leadership of the Democratic Party is saying our democracy is under threat. What? What? It has already uh, been a paralyzed system that is not producing for the interest of everyday people. And the, and the media propaganda and uh, social media in particular, but also standard magazines and newspapers, be at the Wall Street Journal or be at the Washington Post, are diverting people into secondary and tertiary issues, not to the primary contradictions that the society is really faced, because this system is in deep, deep crisis. And one of the ways that it has historically sought to relieve the burden on itself is war. And so we are seeing the U.S. now, it is not just on the sidelines of this expanding its uh, war uh, in, uh, with Russia and Ukraine and NATO now. Uh, we are seeing the discussion of whether people can risk uh, some kind of nuclear intervention. Um, and today's 
uh, news is carrying uh, that the Biden administration thinks that, you know, this question of nuclear warfare is not as threatening. And this is the country that has dropped a nuclear bomb, the only one in the history of humanity that has killed millions of people with nuclear weapons is the United States government. So this is a critical moment wherever we stand on the ideological and political spectrum as U.S. citizens. If we are earnest and honest, we may have legitimate uh, differences ideologically and politically. But if we are earnest and honest, we all have to be concerned and to build a popular front uh, against these warmongers, which are now both in the Republican and the Democratic Party elites tied to the European elites as they are getting millions of more, uh, thousands of more people being forced out of Ukraine as a result of the intensification of the war. And we're People will be on the margins of starvation across the world because the bread, the wheat, the breadbasket of the world is under direct threat now for the expansion of this war. That, those are uh, the that's the context that we have got to bring people's consciousness to. Uh, and you're doing a, an excellent job, I want to say, uh, through by any means necessary, as well as other programs. Well, we thank you so much for that, Mr. Erling. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Mr. James Early is here as we continue. And, you know, Mr. Early, uh, we've been talking some today about uh, not only International Workers' Day and, and what it means for the working class here inside the beating heart of world imperialism, the United States, um, but also uh, sort of the significance of, you know, the, the Cuban Revolution. Because I feel like if you go back and, you know, look at not only the sort of turnout for the May Day celebration in Cuba this year, but in years past, just these, you know, in, incredible uh, numbers of Cuban people coming out to mark this day. And, you know, people in the U.S. Uh, are made so sick by uh, imperialist lies, they actually think that these legions of people are only, you know, doing this because they were forced or coerced. But to me, Mr. Early, it's sort of a reminder of the class of people for whom the revolution was actually fought. You know what I mean? And not, and not even just for whom, but who took part in it uh, in a number of ways and continue to take a part in defending it to this very day, even as over the better part of a century been under attack from the most uh, powerful governments in the world. And so when we talk about the role of the working people and of uh, the social movements, I mean, it seems that uh, as it pertains to the story of Cuba, that, you know, these are the elements that, you know, uh, are really the ones that that society is centered around, which, you know, I think is uh, quite the opposite here uh, in capitalist America. Well, and, and indeed, when one looks back to pre-1959 and Cuba uh, as a neo-colony of uh, 
the United States government and the elite and mafia class in particular uh, a major ground of, of, of international prostitution run by the mafia and the hotel owners, um, Maya Lansky and, and these people, you know, this, this, this renowned meeting of the mafia families held in, in Havana. In Havana. Uh, the exploitation was island-wide, nationwide, and it was highly racialized and highly exploitative of women. Um, and, of course, then the Cuban Revolution comes in, and really uh, the, the elite flee uh, coming into the United States um, with the support of the U.S. State Department, bipartisan support, CIA support. Uh, now you get the sanctus and these people, uh, the seeds of the sanctus and these right-wing uh, fascist thinkers governing Florida today run right back uh, to that white flight, and that's what it was. Uh, uh, white elite flight. Uh, they were also white working people. But most of the people of color and black people stayed in Cuba. They did not have the wherewithal. And so they were the beneficiaries uh, of the revolution, uh, which then brought uh, free health care, free education. Uh, again, look at Esteban Morales Dominguez's uh, uh, YouTube video on, on the New World Coming program, and where he indexes this and the significance of the uplift of the Cuban Revolution for working people, and particularly for people of color and women in that context. If you look throughout Latin America, one of Mexico's renowned singers uh, is in Cuba at this very moment, for uh, internationally renowned for May Day. And she says, you know, Cuba uh, gave us an understanding that we too could be self-determined. Uh, that she did not necessarily, we, we too could become socialists, but we too could be self-determined. And this is what Cuba, why Cuba is still suffering the onslaught of the so-called liberal Democratic Party Biden-Harris administration, uh, which reinforced uh, the fascist Trump administration uh, economic warfare against the Cuban people and against their elected leaders because the United States elite still says, I dare you to step forth and say that you can venture out into the world in a different way than we would have you venture out. And so that across Latin America and the Caribbean, we see, which is a majority of, of smaller capitalist nations, we see them supporting Cuba's right to self-determination, independence, and sovereignty. We see them voting in the U.N. against the U.S. economic uh, warfare, against regime change. We see in just recent days... Uh, representatives of the CARICOM, the majority uh, Anglo-speaking uh, Afro-descendant uh, Caribbean leaders, saying that they will not come to the summit of the Americas in June and July, uh, in, in, uh, in Los Angeles in June, if Cuba is not invited. These are not socialist governments. These are small capitalist governments who say, we live in a zone with Cuba in the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, and our common motto is that we are a zone of peace, security, and development. And they recognize the significance of Cuba, uh, which have educated their doctors, uh, which have provided uh, all kinds of resources and collaboration for the uplift of all of the people in the Caribbean and Latin America, including having offered uh, uh, assistance to us uh, in this natural disasters here in the U.S. and, and educating 
uh, black and brown young people in medical schools who can't get into medical schools in the U.S. with the commitment that they will return to the U.S. to go back to their respective communities where there is a dearth of doctors and medical uh, care opportunities. So the Cuban Revolution is also, I would venture to say, I was speaking with my buddy Danny Glover the other evening and saying, and we were talking about how it is the most refreshing debate and self-reflection and self-criticism going on in Cuban civil society and in the Cuban Communist Party and among the Cuban representatives of government. Uh, under this economic warfare, they're saying, we know what our strengths are. But let us also face our contradictions that are a result of our own failures, uh, not just the U.S. embargo. What other country in the world is putting forth a public voice and a public face in that way? If you look at uh, grandma, and I advise people, just go online and put in grandma, and it comes in. You can read it in English. You don't have to be a Spanish speaker, a Spanish reader to do so. You will see that weekly the president of the country is meeting in every province of the country, not only with elected officials and members of his Communist Party, but with ordinary citizens using such terms as let us look at areas of continuing poverty. Let us look at the as the ongoing issues of racism. Uh, last week, the deputy uh, foreign minister for the U.S., uh, was uh, in Washington, and uh, a number of us, 10, 15 of us, had an opportunity to have lunch with him. And, and almost the third or fourth sentence out of his mouth is that we're looking at the issues of not only the legacy, but the reproduction of racism in Cuban socialism. So that this is a, a dynamic that other people are looking at and says, why are we not also approaching the contradictions and the possibilities of achievement in life? Why is it that this poor country under economic warfare for over 60 years by the U.S. is able to produce five vaccines against this uh, pandemic and no other place uh, outside of the U.S.? I'm not even sure that Canada has produced one and this hemisphere is able to do it. That is the significance of Cuba. And that is why we should pay attention and enter into breaking this economic warfare called the uh, embargo on in U.S. legislation, but from the Cuban perspective, with which I agree, is a blockade and an attempt at regime change. This is why it's important that these hundred or so young people from the United States and across the United States are down there for May Day, and young people from all around the world are going. Uh, the deputy foreign minister said to me directly in conversation with him, he says, I'm you know, when you bring the people down, we want to take them out in the communities, let them see and talk to people themselves, let the mediation of understanding of what the Cuban Revolution was and is about coming directly from citizens, including criticisms that they, they want to raise, that this is an important aspect of democracy and so says Cuba, is for those voices to be raised and for the, the people who are their elected stewards to hear and listen with patience and to figure out how to resolve the legitimate issues of life that they are raising. So this is, this is a continuing significance of the Cuban Revolution uh, into the 21st century and the importance of us learning more about it, and not that it's just historical terms, uh, this tendency to focus on the extraordinary role that they played in Africa. That's an important historical point of view. But Cuba is a live contemporary revolution 
uh, that is facing new circumstances after uh, 62 years of revolution that we should become more familiar with listening to the voices and the internal debates and mediations among Cuban patriots, most of whom are not socialists, but who defend and vote for the Constitution that uphold socialism. This is the importance of honest, earnest people taking taking a, a look at the Cuban Revolution and breaking this travel ban, this anti-democratic role that both Republicans and Democrats prevent U.S. citizens from going and seeing and engaging for ourselves. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Cuban Revolution is a living, breathing process. And I appreciate how you highlight the internal dialogue uh, in Cuba amongst the people and also uh, uh, with the government. But but see, in the U.S., we're told that uh, the Cuban Revolution and the Cuban government is a force that uh, lords over and dictates to the people instead of being in conversation with them. And so not only do I think uh, is that another sort of example of incessant imperialist lies, but also I think it's due to the fact that in the U.S. we, we have no concept of uh, uh, these sorts of um, mass grassroots uh, participatory democracy sorts of institutions sort of institutions in the same way that we see in Cuba and other countries. Like I know in Cuba, they have the the CDRs, the Committees to Defend the, the, the Revolution. In Venezuela, they have uh, the communes. And so we, we, we see these um, institutions in, uh, in different ways and play out at different levels in different countries. And so all of that taken together, it, it invisibilizes that kind of internal um, dialogue to the point where those of us in the West think that it just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? Uh, but I think as Americans, we should ask ourselves, well, I mean, what what kind of dialogue do we really have uh, with our government? You know what I mean? In terms of the things that they uh, uh, put forth for us. And Americans are told that, you know, dictatorships are something that happen in other countries. It happens in bad countries like Cuba and China and and the DPRK and places like this without realizing that we live under a dictatorship of capital. And that fundamental fact is what uh, colors the reality for millions in, in inside this country. So I feel like another way that uh, Cuba is a good example, Mr. Early, in our last five minutes or so, um, is this notion that people are uh, inside internally dialoguing, critiquing out of uh, an effort to improve this uh, revolutionary process and to make it more thorough. Uh, you know what I mean? And so uh, something as simple as that, uh, uh, I think, could really hold a lot of value, particularly for those of us trying to organize here in the U.S. You're absolutely right. So we have to break this embargo and we have to break the embargo that we have imposed on ourselves. We have to go online and look both at Spanish and English uh, uh, citizen based uh, uh, projects coming out of Cuba, talking about the internal dynamics of Cuba, talking about how they are debating and criticizing and proposing to improve their nation, to improve their revolution. We have to listen to this new generation of young adult forces, which includes uh, President Diaz Canales, who is something like 67 years old. Uh, he wasn't even born when the, 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 the two, three, four years old when the revolution was came about. Even if he was born, he's a part of this new younger generation. I say that as a seventy-five-year-old, uh, and so people are still talking about the extraordinary uh, leadership of Fidel Castro, uh, who has now been dead several years, whose spirit still underpins 
this new generation. But this new generation is indeed new social media, uh, new technological kinds of things, new healthcare, who are particularizing the principles of the revolution to their realities in a far more globalized world than was the period of 1959. And we have to target them. This right-wing thinking expressed and, and executed by Blinken and the U.S. State Department, who is still upholding Guaido, uh, this foolish puppet, as a legitimate president of, 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 of Venezuela, who's now being uh, petitioned by uh, uh, right-wing congresspeople uh, and senators uh, from uh, South Florida, mine in particular, uh, to uh, have Guaido represent Venezuelans at the summit of the Americas. These are the ridiculous kinds of things that keeps the U.S. public ignorant of what is going on in the world and keeps us from playing out the contributions that we can play. The struggles in the United States of working people in the history of this republic have brought about some extraordinary reforms in the public space and made some extraordinary contributions in supporting people around the world. Not just, This is not just a left phenomenon. This is of ordinary liberals and middle-class people who have organized over the centuries to engage the rest of the world. But all of that is being obscured by the censorship from the right and the censorship from the, from the liberals and the blindness that is being carried out by the United States uh, State Department. And we as citizens must target them and call them out for the lies that they're telling, for the diversion, and for the wars that they are pushing us in, and the starvation of people around the world. Many of these areas around the world where U.S. policy is involved in literal starvation uh, with the Saudi Republic and so forth and so on are not being talked about. And I want to thank, again, uh, your program, uh, you and Jackie, uh, for being a, a forum for political education and urging uh, the the listenership out there to actively engage with and supporting your programs and others. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, friends, we know from studying that uh, revolution is, in fact, a, a process and they were never meant to be just frozen in time. And while we can't and we shouldn't attempt to try to transplant uh, a process that began in 1959 or 1979 or 1917 or what have you till today, there are a lot of lessons that we can draw from what has happened and what continues to happen and how it can inform us in our struggle to bring about a new society. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Mr. James Early so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.